This is Doc. Tonight, we're all over the place. Body talk. Stay tuned. I want you to do just one thing for me. Love yourself. And have self-belief And know Anything is within reach As long As you believe Real quick, say I was down in the darkness I didn't have no sight And I I, I didn't feel right I found my God Now I know I can do anything It's possible So love yourself Oh, please do this And won't you understand You're perfectly flawed Oh, yeah Oh, to love yourself that's all I ask And oh, 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 I love you all Yeah Thank you When I look at how our history is presented often Versus how history and how our culture is presented in my family the two don't match up because what I see in my family is, is strength. I see perseverance. I see modern people who live modern lifestyles, who have respect for the past, who are trying to make things right. There has to be a breath of honesty in history, and oftentimes we romanticize history. Mission history is often just taught from a very staunchly pro-Spanish um, perspective, even in public schools. It just didn't happen that along come the Spanish and the history of, uh, of California started there. It wasn't a wilderness, untamed wilderness. The, the land was under the control of Indian people. The Padres and the Spanish soldiers came from the south to um, uh, colonized California uh, in 1769 to create a, uh, a land base that they could call New Spain. They wanted to expand it from what is now Mexico, Baja, uh, to Alta, California, which is now uh, uh, the state of California. The first four major sites were the harbors of California, of Upper California. So San Diego, Santa Barbara, Monterey, and San Francisco. The Spanish needed to establish those harbors because they were afraid in the late 18th century that the Russians were coming down from Alaska looking for foods to supply their colonies. The Russians did get as far as 100 miles north of San Francisco at what today we call Fort Ross, back then was Fort Ruski. So they were concerned about the Russians. 
Sir Francis Drake had been here in the bay, and he was, if you were the king of Spain, he was a pirate because he was robbing the Manila galleon ships, making the Queen of England very, very wealthy. But to the king of Spain, he was a pirate. So Spain was concerned about the British in this area. France had control of a great, great portion of Middle America. So the king of Spain is worried about the Emperor Napoleon marching this way to occupy Upper California. The king of Spain was concerned that if these other foreign countries arrived here, they would keep marching south to Mexico City and attack Spain in Mexico City. So the way to defend Mexico was to establish presidios at the four great Upper California harbors. The Spanish uh, padres and their force of soldiers came here and disrupted the lives of the native Californians. They were looking for uh, uh, large populations of, uh, of natives in their various communities so that they could uh, immediately have a large labor force established. And the Spanish method for establishing a presidio was to take the native peoples of an area teach them how to build Spanish style, and then have them build and people these new areas in the Spanish way. The Spanish method for doing this was to send the padres, the priest, because part of the Spanish philosophy was to take the people you find in all these new places, new to the Spanish, not to the natives, in these places, and change them into good Spaniards. And part of the process of changing them was to begin with changing them into good Christians, into good Catholics. So the instruments of change, not only of the religion, but of language, of culture, of lifestyle, of religion, everything about the native peoples, the people who were to do the changing, the job task was the fathers, the padres. So the task was to bring native peoples into missions, teach them how to build a mission, and then they would be the workers that would go over and build the presidio. It was a commercial venture. Uh, the natives here were the uh, labor force, and they weren't even the paid labor force. It was indentured servitude. They had to work uh, uh, in the fields. Daily life uh, for Indians in the mission system was deplorable. Being dragged from your own village, where you lived a life of peace, usually, uh, to uh, being a slave laborer in a mission context where you were separated from your family. The men were in one dorm, the women were in another dorm, and uh, the children were separated from the women. Uh, and a lot of sexual abuse, a lot of physical abuse occurred. They were raped by the soldiers. Uh, if uh, you didn't work the way they wanted you to work, uh, you were beaten severely. There was uh, uh, outright killing, but I think the biggest, uh, uh, the, the biggest crippling effect of the Spanish mission on Native people in California uh, were the diseases that were brought to California by the soldiers and the padres, things like diphtheria, things like influenza, things like smallpox, and other diseases for which the native people had no immunity. If you 
took ill very seriously. They didn't necessarily uh, try to heal you. Uh, they um, gave up on you and uh, uh, you had to die. Uh, there are a lot of people buried around these, uh, these missions. Uh, a lot of children buried around the missions. And so we lost hundreds of thousands of native people to diseases. It was uh, a total destruction of their traditional way of life. If we're presenting mission history from an aspect of social justice, of doing the right thing, of making sure that we're, we're trying to be fair and be honest and accurate, then it does good for everybody. Not just us, but also the, letting the truth out and letting people know the history of, of, of our mission and um, how it's directly affected to the history of California. How are you all today? Thank you for coming out. My name is Allison Bruzahoff. I'm the Museum Executive Director here. And it's a pleasure to have you here for one of our speaker series, Traveling, Working, and Living on the Rancho. Today we're going to hear a very interesting talk from Julia on the Tongva Indians who lived in the South Bay area and did a lot of work on the Rancho San Pedro. And with that, I'd like to introduce Julia and turn it over to her. Julia. up in San Gabriel Mountains is Suwanna, the great big mountains, right? <laughs> so that's how we distinguish our mountains. And so that's the name of this village. Uh, uh, Tongva means people of the earth. Where people, uh, most people know us as Gabrielinos uh, because, we, you know, our people uh, built the missions. And so because of that, they named us Gabrielinos because that was the name of our the people that were building, <laughs> the people that owned the missions named it San Gabriel Mission and so they named us Capitolinos. So I was reading, I didn't bring um, uh, Genocide of the Missions, but it says, you know, we always considered ourselves as slaves to the mission, but they said because they didn't have papers on us and because we didn't, um, didn't actually have titles, we were actually just doing the Lord's work. And so, so it's, it's, a, it's a different way to look at it. <laughs> you know, we were doing it forcibly. <laughs> so, so I always have my little, uh, my little thing on the missions and I say, I'm bring, I brought, when I teach about the missions, you know, there wasn't no site out there saying, would you like to work, would you like to work here for uh, board and, you know, room and board or, would you like to learn about something? But I say that the little mission buildings had these gates because they were prisons to us. Whether they think that we were slaves or not, they were still prisons. You know, and some people did like them. You know, I had several diaries from children that lived at the mission who uh, some people wanted to stay after. And that always happens when you're captive. And some people were glad to get out of there. And some, a lot of people died leaving. A lot of children died before age nine because that's what they used for uh, the people to, to do the job there, right? And then um, 
first time I came to this ranch, I thought, boy, we could do a whole lot here. <laughs> you know, this is a gorgeous ranch. So, uh, I'm the culture affairs for the Gabrielino Tangwa of San Gabriel. And you'll notice that when you see us at different places, we introduce ourselves differently because I say San Gabriel because I'm under Chief Anthony Redblood, which is the chief of our tribe. And chief comes from the lineage.
So uh, we do have a language class in San Pedro, and we meet once a month. We read um, a professor from UCLA, um, Pamela Monroe, teaches our language class. And so we have, this is our second dictionary. So we have improvement. I can, um, you can come up and see it if you like. I have the, the large map that my cousin's been working on on our villages, and there's a group now working on the names of the villages to put into fourth grade of all the tribes in California. It's going to be pretty full, right? <laughs> and then I brought you village names, uh, and I brought you the timeline that's in the back. And. This is the little language book we used to have years and years ago from Mocky Press. And it just had a couple of words, really real simple words. You know, there's a thing here and there, not really something we could learn from. But uh, so we have we have done games for our children because I, I taught preschool for years. I've done like um, body parts, posters, and I've done um, bingo, you know, everybody likes to play bingo, so we've done bingo colors. And we don't have the color orange, blue, and what else? Purple. So I had to make those colors up, right? So nobody liked my ideas. So then I decided, well, I'm going to say purple is like the the California violet is 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 the lavender. So it's like the lavender, and that's my purple. <laughs> Instead of making up a color purple. Our, our, some of our language is, is close to Spanish, like uh, the word for horse, caballo, is only spelled with a K instead of a, it's spelled with a K in Tonga instead of a C. And so we're, we try to get away from that and not use too many Spanish words, but start taking words within our language. So the word for minute we use, uh, it sounds like tadpole. So we use, uh, it's 12 and uh, 15 tadpoles, you know. <laughs> you know, because we're real comedians in the Tongva tribe. <laughs> my, my, my greatest uh, knowledge of the Tongva is uh, in the women. I'm big on the women's stories, they empower me. Juana, uh, Juana Maria, you know, the Gabilino, um, a lot of people say she's shoe mash. And, you know, we did DNA about three years ago with one of my cousins, and she is Tongva. Of course, she was on San Nicolas Island, which belongs to us. Why would she be sure? <laughs> you know, she was, she, they took her, she was on the wrong island when they picked her up, and they put, put her in the wrong mission. But um, there is a book being rewritten on uh, Juana Maria, and there's questions. Did Juana Maria, you know, because it was a, uh, wasn't a true story, but it was a good story. So the question is, did Juana Maria jump off the boat that she lived, or did she die when she jumped off the boat? After all, there was a big um, storm, right? So then Juana Maria might have been the little girl on the, on the, on the, already at the island, and it might have been a little girl who grew up there. So there's those questions, you know, being answered, questions, and, and so there's people working on the new book of Juana Maria. But anyway, so Juana Maria to me, she's she's powerful because, you know, she survived on that island. Science said nobody could have survived that many years on the island by themselves. They Hola amores, welcome back to my channel and to another Cultures of the Americas video. And for today, we'll be discussing the Taino Indians of the Caribbean.
The Taino were an indigenous people of the Caribbean. At the time of European contact in the late 15th century, they were the principal inhabitants of most of Cuba, Española, the Dominican Republic, and Haiti, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, the Bahamas, and the northern Lesser Antilles. Spanish priest Bartolomé de las Casas estimated that about 600,000 people lived in Jamaica and Puerto Rico, with as many as a million in Española. The ancestors of the Taino originated in South America, and the Taino culture, as documented, developed in the Caribbean. Taino groups were many times in conflict with the island Caribs of the southern Lesser Antilles. At the time of contact, the Taino were divided into several groups. Western Taino groups included the Lucayans of the Bahamas, the Sibone of central Cuba, and the inhabitants of Jamaica. The classic Taino lived in Española and Puerto Rico, while the eastern Taino lived in the northern islands of the Lesser Antilles. Of the four types, the classic Tainos were the most advanced culturally and were considered to be on the cusp of advancing their society into an advanced civilization. Advanced meaning having a written history, as they were also advanced in many other facets of human life. Many groups of people currently identify as Taino or having partial Taino ancestry, most notably among Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Jamaicans, and Dominicans, both on the islands and in the United States. Some scholars, such as Jaleel Sued Badillo, an ethno-historian at the University Where was the first place European explorers landed in the Americas? Was it Mexico, the United States, Brazil? Well, actually, it was Greenland over a thousand years ago. But when discussing the more recent European colonialism, the first ships to set sail from the Old World led by Christopher Columbus landed in an unknown island in the Lucayan Archipelago, what we refer to today as the modern-day Bahamas. Subsequent waves of Europeans had very volatile interactions with the natives of these islands, to say the least, but with the introduction of Old World diseases into the native population, their fate was set as soon as the first interactions between these two wildly disparate populations took place. And it's claimed that by the year 1600, only 100 years after first contact, virtually the entire Taino ethnicity and other natives of the Caribbean had gone extinct through a combination of enslavement, warfare, and epidemics, completely changing the demographic landscape of this region forever. What exactly is the Caribbean, though? Well, other than being used to describe the large open body of water connected to the Atlantic Ocean as a geographic descriptor, the Caribbean region, or West Indies as it is colloquially known, is generally used to describe the various island chains that box in the Caribbean Sea from the Atlantic Ocean, divided into a number of archipelagos stretching from South America to North America, including the Lesser Antilles in the east, which includes Barbados, Trinidad, and others, the ABC Islands in the south, which includes Aruba, Bonaire, and Curaçao, three constituent countries of the Netherlands, the Greater Antilles in the west, which includes Cuba, Hispaniola, Jamaica, and Puerto Rico, and finally the Lucayan Archipelago in the north, which includes the Bahamas, Turks, and Caicos Islands. At European contact, there were around a million people living throughout the Caribbean, including over 700,000 on the island of Hispaniola, which on this one island would have been a population density about the same as Argentina today, or three times higher than that of Canada. 
However, keep in mind that these early Caribbean natives were not a single unified ethno-linguistic group and arrived in their new island home at varying points in time, although interestingly, nearly all of them seem to have originated from South America rather than North America, despite the distance and close proximity to the mainland of both continents. But it's actually now known that virtually all Amerindian tribes in the Caribbean started on the northern coast of South America, what is now Venezuela, and proceeded to move north along the Lesser Antilles, hopping from island to island in various waves, and settling down along the way. The most archaic and isolated group were people located on the farthest western tip of Cuba, and the nearby island of Juventud, that were dubbed by the Spanish as the Guanajatabe, and were not related to any other known Caribbean natives or those from the mainland. As a hunter-gatherer society, the Guanajatabe were most likely descended from the first, or at least the oldest surviving migration wave from the mainland, most likely at least 3,100 BC. That's older than most of the pyramids of Egypt, at over 5,000 years old, although Amerindians have inhabited South America for at least 10,000 years. The next wave of migrants to enter the Caribbean were the Taino, perhaps the most widely distributed and most numerous people group in the region, and were distantly related to a larger ethnic macro group known as the Arawakan peoples from the mainland of South America, with the Taino spreading out to the Bahamas, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, Hispaniola, and most of the remainder of Cuba, divided between a few main groupings which may or may not have been mutually intelligible. The other major group of the Caribbean was the Caribs, a smaller Arawakan ethnic group located in the Lesser Antilles. And before you ask, it was actually the Caribbean that was named after the Carib people, rather than the people being named after the region. The situation gets a bit more complicated for Trinidad and Tobago, which actually have multiple indigenous peoples, including the aforementioned island Caribs, as well as the Locono and Warawo, while Aruba, Bonaire, and Curaçao were originally inhabited by Arawakan Kakito people, though due to their isolation from the rest of the Caribbean islands, their culture was more similar to that on the mainland than in the Greater Antilles. Areas that are also often associated with the Caribbean, such as Bermuda in the Atlantic Ocean, and the Cayman Islands in between Mexico and Jamaica, actually had no indigenous population by the time the first Europeans arrived, but that doesn't mean their modern populations don't have any Amerindian blood, as migrants brought from other Caribbean islands may have had partial native ancestry. So this leads us to what exactly happened to the million or so natives of the Caribbean, which, as you could guess, is quite the tragic history. As being the first area of the Americas that the Spaniards came across, it was also the first to be conquered and integrated into the Spanish Empire, with diseases such as measles, smallpox, and the flu being the greatest weapons of the Spanish, and the greater technological advancement of the Spanish put down any large-scale rebellions by the Taino. After this, many of the remaining natives were enslaved or fled to the interiors of the larger islands, although there was considerable intermixing between them, as many Spaniards who arrived on Hispaniola or Cuba often took Taino wives, with their mestizo offspring often becoming conquistadors themselves and aiding in the conquest of the rest of the New World. However, by and large, the biggest demographic change to occur to the Caribbean islands would be the importation of slaves from Sub-Saharan Africa, who were quickly pumped in to replace the dwindling Taino population, and they would proceed to eventually become the majority in the French and British Caribbean territories, while in the Spanish territories it was a bit different, as most of the time the Spanish or Mestizo men would intermix with these imported Africans, creating a new hybridized population. 
There are even some accounts of escaped African slaves moving and integrating into Taino villages, although eventually the entirety of the populations of these islands would become Hispanicized, with the Taino and African languages being replaced by Spanish and racial identification on the island becoming rather fluid, with all inhabitants eventually becoming more or less connected in some way. Although anecdotes of surviving Taino exist well into the 1600s in the Greater Antilles, one of the only regions where the natives were able to actually survive the conquests, disease, and massacres were in these smaller islands, with England and France agreeing to make Dominica and St. Vincent into a Carob or Kalinago refuge, although eventually England would annex these islands as well. And with the importation of Africans to these islands, it would appear that the last of the native Caribbeans were about to be washed away forever. However, a group of escaped African slaves from St. Vincent would actually end up intermixing with some of the native Caribs, creating a hybrid Afro-Amerindian or Zambo people that were highly opposed to the British rule, and ended up being deported to Central America, where their descendants are known as the Garifuna or Garanagua today, still speaking their own distinct Arawakan dialect rather than English or Spanish, being located mostly in Honduras and Belize. In Dominico, however, the Kalinago actually did survive in the northeast corner of the island, making them the last remnants of the pre-contact indigenous Caribs, although in recent years there has been substantial intermixing with their neighbors in Dominica, leaving only a few hundred full-blooded members remaining, as most in the Kalinago community have African or European ancestry as well, but they are still quite the vibrant community, making up around 3% of the island and growing, actually. Due to the history of intermixing with many of the Caribbean natives, their genetics, and possibly even to a greater extent, their culture and traditions still live on in almost every modern nation in the region, as most Afro-Caribbeans have a degree of European and smaller Amerindian admixture, and in the case of the Hispanic Caribbean, it's been found through genetic studies that the whiter any individual is in these nations, the more likely it is that Amerindian DNA makes up a greater part of their non-European ancestry. In total, Native American ancestry still continues to make up around 7% of the overall genome of the entire Caribbean, greatly depending, of course, on self-identified ethnicity as well as region, as it's been found that mixed-race Puerto Ricans have around 20-25% to Taino ancestry, while groups like the Haitians have almost none, existing only in trace amounts, suggesting a total population replacement. This may not sound like a whole lot, but out of the total population of the Caribbean being 45 million people today, this is equivalent to around 3.2 million full-blooded Caribbean Native Americans, with the highest geographic concentration being in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic, although the modern Caribbean island with the highest percentage of Amerindian admixture as a proportion of the national gene pool would be Aruba, not terribly surprising seeing how it is one of the closest islands to the mainland. Even in most Anglo-West Indian countries, Afro-Caribbeans still have varying amounts of Amerindian DNA on average, possibly as high as 3 or 4% in Jamaica and the Virgin Islands, 5% in the Bahamas, and between 6 to 8% in St. Kitts, St. Vincent, Grenada, and St. Lucia, and possibly even higher than this in the Afro-Trinidadian population. Compare this to black Americans in the United States, who on average have only 1% Native American blood, or the average white American who has even less than that, and it would appear that the United States, and I suppose Haiti as well, are some of the sole anomalies of the Americas, 
that being some of the only places in the hemisphere where Native American ancestry is not as widespread, as even in most parts of the Caribbean, their Native American genetics and heritage still lives on in the present day. In Puerto Rico, there has been a bit of a Taino cultural revival, with many embracing their indigenous roots, and in the 2010 U.S. Census, around 10,000 Puerto Ricans identified as Native American, being an interesting example of an ethnic group being revived literally from extinction, although many members of this neo-Taino community have argued that there is simply a continuation of the former Taino people and culture, although it's unknown if these self-identified Taino have any more Native American DNA on average, or whether they just have the right amount of European and African DNA to look vaguely Native. But either way, their embracing of their Amerindian heritage is part of a wider movement in Latin America to identify with the whole of their ancestry, uniting the region in their uniquely shared history, with the Taino, Caribs, and other Arawakan people native to the Caribbean being one of the most important chapters in that history. So please let me know your thoughts on the natives of the Caribbean, and for today's poll, let me know which region of the Caribbean you'd like to learn more about either in reference to their native people groups or the modern people who live there today. As always, this has been Mason. Thanks for watching, everyone, and I'll see you next time. three centuries, the Comanches ruled as lords of the southern plains. With the coming of white settlers and the might of the U.S. Army, the land was being wrested from its Indian masters. The Comanches resented this appropriation of their ancestral home and say only one recourse, war. In 1836, during a Comanche raid on Fort Parker, Texas, nine-year-old Cynthia Ann Parker was captured. She grew up among the Comanches whom she learned to love dearly. Ultimately, she married famed Comanche chief Peter Nocona, for whom she bore three children. Quana was born to the couple in 1845 and was the only one of the three children to survive. Sharp of mind and an intrepid warrior, Quanta emerged as a vigorous and enlightened protector of Comanche interest. Quanta led Cheyennes, Arapahoes, Comanches, Kiowas, and Apaches in their last great surge against white encroachment, known as Battle of Adobe Walls. 
a military strategist of the First Order. He became one of the most feared Indians on the Southern Plains. But the white man was superior in weapons and numbers. The day came when Quanah knew that further resistance would only lead to annihilation of the Comanches. He counseled his people to lay down their arms and to take the white man's road. On June 2nd, 1875, Quanah and his followers surrendered at Fort Sill. By an ironic twist of fate, it was Quanah who led the Comanches in their final struggle against the encroachment of his mother's own people, the whites. And once the fighting was over, it was he, as the last chief of the Comanches, who would lead them up from the bitter ashes of defeat to walk the white man's road. Quanah dedicated himself to the strenuous task of guiding the Comanches into civilization. Courageous and strong-willed, he was also a natural diplomat. Traveling numerous times to Washington, D.C. to represent the Comanches, he was a familiar figure in Congress. He became a successful farmer, a rancher, and a major stockholder at the Quanah, Acme, and Pacific Railway. He had vital interest in educating the young people and became president of his local school board. In 1905, Quanah rode in Theodore Roosevelt in All Girl Parade. In a special report to the president, it was stated of Quanah, if ever nature stamped a man with the seal of headship, she did it in his case. Quanah would have been a leader and a governor in any circle where fate may have cast him. On December 4, 1910, Quanah had his mother's remains exhumed and reburied near his home where, as he said, I might lie beside her. At Quanah's request, Congress erected a monument at her gravesite. Three months after her reburial, Chief Quanah died on February 23, 1911. Quanah, who was responsible for the Comanche's transition onto the white man's road, and who perhaps did more than any other man to reconcile these two great races, was mourned by whites and Indians alike. Approximately 1,500 people formed a funeral procession over two miles long. Although his remarkable adaptation to white ways brought him honor and wealth, he never did forsake his Comanche heritage. He loved his culture. He was proud of it and strove to preserve it. When he was buried beside his white mother, he was in the full regalia of a Comanche chief. Quana had seven Comanche wives and begat 24 children. Every year, the descendants of Quana and the Parker relatives of Texas gathered to honor the memory of Cynthia Ann and her remarkable son, Quana Parker, last chief of the Comanches.
My name is Rudy R. Shabala. I'm a Navajo Indian, and I'm also the executive director for the Navajo Nation Division of Natural Resources. this particular water source where it dried up and the livestock uh, they died of thirst and the equipment's not functioning and with the we've been in drought for quite some time and our forage is really decreased uh, yesterday we were in the western part of the Navajo reservation and we visited a particular hand pump water well where the livestock producers, uh, it's the only water source within seven miles in each direction. And uh, it's a hand pump water well that never dries up. But people that bring their livestock there, they hand pump the, the water troughs full of water. The water pumps, the windmills out in the field, out in the ranges, uh, a lot of them are in disrepair. We started relying on the water source from the chapter houses more. My concern three years ago was what if something happened? We should have these windmills and hand pump water wells in operable conditions, which is indeed what happened when the COVID-19 struck. And when the chapter shut down, the water sources were cut off. The people that live out in the country that haul their water every day, all of a sudden they were without water. Water is life is a statement started by uh, grassroots people, if you will, that live out and make their living with livestock, make their living with their gardens, dependent on water. You can dodge COVID-19 by social distancing, by staying home, by wearing masks. But you can't dodge being without water. You can only live for three days without water. And so water is life. Uh, one of the main problems that would be solved with water spread out throughout Navajo country, it allows people to stay home to attend to other duties rather than have to be in line waiting at the chapter house for water. If they have a water source that's reliable nearby, all the families in that area can safely know that they have a water source nearby for themselves, their livestock, and for their gardens. People always want to know about subjects in that that uh, we have mentioned. And one of those happens to be about giants. There are giants, yes, 
These things were destroying the Dene. The boys went to see their father to acquire weaponry to use it against these things that were destroying the Dene. And the uh, father did give them the weapons and they destroyed Yeitso. <laughs> Many of the presentations we make here at the Navajo Traditional Teaching, people always want to know about subjects on that that uh, we have mentioned at various times. And one of those happens to be about giants. There are giants, yes, but the way that the Dene teach about the Yeitso, uh, the big, the big fear, the uh, word itself, Yeitso, Ye means fear. When it's big fear, it's so. So the word so means big fear. The uh, teaching that goes along with it is that uh, it goes back to the two boys that went to visit their, uh, their father. And their purpose was to go to their father and to get weapons to come and destroy the, uh, the yei, the things to fear, the things that are fearful and destructive. These things were destroying the Dene. The boys went to see their father and to acquire weaponry that would allow them to use it against these uh, things that were destroying the Dene. And the uh, father did give them the weapons and that. And the uh, boys returned and they destroyed the big fears, the things to fear. Yeetso. But over the years, because of the way that the, uh, the story is told, many times we get the wrong impression that these were actual physical beings that were out there doing destruction and uh, destroying the people in a physical way. It is in a physical way, but it also is the uh, emotional, the mental, and the spiritual way that people are destroyed. And so the yeitso uh, is the, the big fear. And the big fear in everybody's life is different. None of us actually experience the same type of fear. Some of us might be fearful of, uh, of darkness. We can go out, some of us, and we are very fearful of getting near an, an edge of uh, a ledge of a cliff or something. We are fearful of heights. We are here fearful of darkness. We are fearful of something. But not all of us are fearful of the same things. So, yeitso, the things that we fear, the traditional teachings of our people is yeitso, is uh, our individual fears and in that, that actually can destroy us. If it destroys us, it can destroy our families. It can destroy our communities. It can destroy whole societies of people. And so these are the real giants. And those things that we allow into our lives, the destructive types of behavior, the destructive types of thinking, and the destructive types of things of doing. And these are the yeitso. These are the things to fear. So we have people that, in the world that spread this fear. And fear is not a very good path to follow. Fear can become hate. Fear can, can become all kinds of negative things. And so it was that when the boys went to see their father and to acquire weapons, one of those weapons was the idea of recognizing that you are the offspring of the most sacred of beings, which is the, the maker, the creator, and the uh, supreme being. I think that when we understand our relationship with the uh, the Supreme Being, it is on an individual basis. Each of us have direct contact with that being. And so it is that that is one of the weapons that is given to the, the two boys, is the idea of having a relationship with your deity.
as you understand that being, and which could be your highest power, the higher power, the uh, weapon of prayer in that and having a relationship with your deity is uh, only one weapon. But the other thing is that that of faith, in our traditional teaching, we have the uh, four affirmations in the four sacred direction, to the east thinking, to the south planning, to the west life or living, and then of course to the north is that of chaseh, is what they call it. Now a lot of times it's translated to say supposedly hope, but it's not. It is actually more of a word that says faith. And so faith is a very necessary part of the weaponry and that that is used against the things that are giants that can destroy you and destroy your families and your societies. And that is the idea of combining faith with prayer and knowing that the holy people are the ones that are in charge and they are the ones that uh, allow some of these things to happen. And so it is that uh, we experience many things. And so faith and prayer are the weapons that were given to the two boys by their father and the uh, teachings about Yeats. So maybe a disappointment to people because they want it to be the jolly green giant or the giant out of Jack and the Beanstalk. There are giants and there are evidence of uh, people that were very tall and uh, they lived their lives and uh, Ardenet were aware of uh, people that were uh, of great height, but actually it is the personal fears that you have. Some fears are good, but some fears are very destructive, and those are the things that we are told. <laughs> Hey, thanks for watching our videos. If you like what you see, don't forget to uh, subscribe and hit that notification bell so you never miss one of our uploads. Also, head over to our website, NavajoTraditionalTeachings.com. Sign up for our email list. Okay. Tonight on the American Experience, he spoke of peace until they killed his family and took his land. Now he chose to fight. He would become the U.S. Army's most wanted renegade. Apaches were taught, fight when you've got the strength and it's best to die young. Geronimo and the Apache Resistance, tonight on The American Experience. Hello, I'm David McCullough. Our film tonight breaks new ground. I think it's also one of the most beautiful in our series. It's called Geronimo and the Apache Resistance. Who was the legendary Geronimo? Who were the Apache? Or more to the point, who were the Chiricahua Apache? And what was their story in reality? 
To an Apache, the past is traditionally a closed subject. To speak of the dead is taboo. So the Chiricahua have kept their experience largely to themselves, until now. What you're about to see is a privileged view. The Chiricahua have agreed to talk on camera as they never have before. For 20 years, Geronimo and his people fought to keep their land and their way of life. For 27 years, they were held prisoners of war, longer than anyone in our history. Theirs, too, is a powerful American story. I'm the chief of the Elnu Abenaki. Elnu Abenaki is my tribe, and I'm Turtle Clan. We're an Abenaki community in southern Vermont. We're state recognized by the state of Vermont. Um, we're the smallest tribe that I know of in Vermont, with about 60 members. There are many different sacred sites in Vermont. Um, there are stone kerns, underground chambers. Uh, but what I'm mostly going to talk about right now is along the Connecticut River, we have two sites that are known for the pictographs there. One is at Bellows Falls. Um, it's on the west side of the river of the pictographs. This is a place where people would come to gather uh, when the fish runs were coming in. Um, so for thousands of years, people have been coming here, Abenaki people and, and fishing, um, mostly living on the western side, the eastern side of the river, and the New Hampshire side. Um, but on the western side, where Bellows Falls today, what they call the island, um, above the pictographs that are there are, were many burials at one time. Most of them are probably not there anymore because they built the town right on top of everything. Um, but besides of the, the, the fish runs, this place would seem to have been a very sacred place, again, because of the pictographs that are down right along the river. Um, and then the burials behind them uh, up on this peninsula of land. And we have a similar situation uh, in Brattleboro, which is about 19 to 20 miles south of Bellows Falls. Again, would have been the Sokoki Abenaki that were living there. And again, we have pictographs today. They're under about 15 feet of water um, since they built the Vernon Dam. And the water has risen. Uh, it was also a whirlpool out there basically off of where these were. And again, this peninsula of land had uh, burial grounds all through that area and kind of kind of southwest of there is what we call the meadows. And um, there were uh, reports when the first Europeans came in, we have these reports of giant cornfields there, uh, a village site up behind there, and even a dance circle that had been pounded down for so long that it took several decades before anything would grow back. Um, so this, this is, again, is another one of those sacred places. Both of these places, in, in the case of the West River, there was a sinkhole. It's probably filled up now because there doesn't seem to be any, you know, any whirlpool movement or anything. Um, but a hundred years ago, uh, when the pictographs were still able to be seen on the West River there above the, the you know the water level there was a, a sinkhole and a whirlpool there and would suck the water down 
Now that in itself would have been an important sacred place because the underwater spirits are believed to be the ones who cause whirlpools and things like that. And it would be like a, a doorway or possibly a portal into the underwater world, into the spirit world there. Um, and again, the same thing you would see at Bellows Falls because of all of the many potholes and when that water is running very heavily, you have whirlpools and all sorts of things. So we kind of think that the pictographs are there in both places because of the the the, the way the water is moving and working. I remember a test question specifically that was who discovered America and I was like Native Americans because you can't discover something that was already <laughs> inhabited um, and they were like you can change your answer and I was like no <laughs> Honestly, I get a lot of instructors who will contact us and myself specifically asking about how they should be teaching things and that they feel nervous about teaching something that they have no experience in. Um, and who do you ask? I always look to tell a person's story from their own perspective and the um, specifically with the Abenaki or with any indigenous people, it's an oral tradition which is beautiful and lovely, and it's a living culture and stories that evolve and change with each generation. But because it's not written, um, there are certain challenges in terms of accessing those resources. Maybe there's divisions in the community. Maybe we haven't written down all of our story up until now. So in our curriculum, there is not a mandate for indigenous history or the, actually there's not a set curriculum in our school that um, outlines what we should teach in terms of indigenous history. It's certainly encouraged that we include indigenous history and um, really all perspectives when we teach any history um, and any studies, but our curriculum is really outlined around the transferable skills that are the graduation requirements for the state of Vermont and for our district. scientists were um, suggesting that we could breed a, a better um, crop of stronger, healthier, smarter, more virile, or um, just better Vermonters. So there were a lot of groups that were targeted in terms of um, 
for sterilization and other measures and that the Abenaki were among, um, certainly not the only people who were impacted by that, um, people who were living in poverty, anybody who was seen to be less than, and that it's actually the same science that the um, Holocaust was based on. It's important for students to understand both perspectives and both definitions, something often missed from textbooks. The perspective the textbook usually uses can be seen in the language. Watch for this. Did C Christopher Columbus discover or invade America? What words are used to explain the takeover another, of another person's land? Manifest destiny, God-given right, eminent domain, purchased, admitted to the union, acquired, claim, expansion, civilizing mission, by virtue of, or does the book interchange these words with words like took, stole, robbed, tricked, capitalism, murder, mass immigration, dominate, imperialism, unrighteousness, immoral, evilness. As you can see, the story can be told many different ways, not just what you see in the textbook. My knowledge about the Abenaki um, largely comes from what I've learned from Abenaki people and Abenaki sources. And so it's not a complete understanding, but I certainly um, pursue those resources and try to learn as much as I can, understanding that I have an outsider's perspective. As we've become aware that um, there's not one single story that reflects an experience especially if we're looking at the past to inform present or future, the, that's, that's what we want to share with our students. So we want to help them realize that um, a source is not the whole picture. And how do we um, recognize um, that there's, if I, if I hear this, um, this isn't the single story. I need to find out more. What are the other perspectives? What are the other sources saying so that we don't just hold on to sound bites, but really look past just what's on, on the surface? The absolute best resource to use is to reach out to the people themselves. Reach out to the communities, learn from us. If you want to incorporate our history, our ways of knowing into every other aspect of curriculum, um, not just history, um, we've made an impact on the world in many different ways. Um, first, it's critical that people understand that we have something to offer. So, um, for instance, we've just, uh, Fred Wiseman and um, a lot of the indigenous community here have been working on a Seeds of Renewal project um, and bringing back heritage varieties of seeds. Um, what a great way to talk about um, sustainability. Include people not just because they're indigenous but because they have something valuable. So um, if you're going to invite indigenous people to come and celebrate them, um, don't just do drumming. Do something that's that brings out all that they are. 
that all they have that to offer of value, um, and that's many different ways. You know, there's we're multifaceted people with a living, breathing, beautiful culture. Reaffirm our own identity as being something that's we should be proud of. Yeah. And so for kids who are still, they have a very malleable sense of who they are, um, and they're developing that. And so it is critical the way that teachers are teaching about things.